So people keep asking me um, if I'm ready for my priesthood ordination that's coming up in a couple of weeks, and um, I feel like the honest answer is no, in part because I am constantly, every week I come to church and I am learning something new along with you, that I feel like, again, that I should already know before I become a priest. Today in particular, I was actually delighted, but I was surprised by Lisa's introduction to worship, that this indeed is Good Shepherd, it's called Good Shepherd Sunday, and I'm thinking, I didn't even realize that. <laughs> but it is a Holy Spirit thing, I really truly believe that, that that is precisely where I landed with these scriptures. So indeed, um, the working title of my sermon was Jesus the Good Shepherd, which at least tells me I kind of know how to read the Bible. <laughs> so perhaps I'm partially ready. Whose voice gets your attention? Our daughter turned 13 this week, and uh, it was a bit of an emotional day for my wife and me, not because we were freaking out that we now have a teenager living in the house, that perhaps too, a little bit, but because her arrival 13 years ago, which seemed like it was just yesterday, was the end of this long and arduous journey for us. Long story short, but we were married for 10 years before she was born. So she was the first long-awaited child, first grandchild for my parents, first niece, my sisters. Lucy was pretty much the center of the universe in our family gatherings. If she made a noise, everyone would jump. She could be upstairs sleeping in the furthest bedroom with the door closed with like, I don't, I don't think insulation is a good idea, but she could make the most delicate of gurgles and everyone would charge. My wife Esther in particular would develop superhuman hearing, as I understand that many moms do, where she could hear my daughter crying through all sorts of noise and distance. One time she called home from work to ask why I was making her daughter cry. During that period, our daughter had certainly our, my keenest attention. And that feels in some ways like a blink of an eye, but it also was a distant chapter in my life. But I still have voices that get my attention and in their own way make me jump and take heed. We all do. People we care for, people we re respect, people with power over us, people we want to impress. I don't mean this in a bad way at all, but there is a hierarchy of attention when it comes to the voices we listen for. And sometimes, even unbeknownst to ourselves, there are certain voices that dominate our attention. And it may not necessarily be the one that you acknowledge to be the one that should dominate your attention. 
whose looming presence guide the narrative, narratives of our lives. In the biggest sense, these voices order our priorities, our perception of what is safe and fearful in the universe, and our imaginations of what is even possible. So whose voice do you listen to? Whose voice do you follow? In one sense, I think Psalm 23 is a response to this very question. One way for me to think about this is to think about it as a response, that the psalm is a response to a prior, unwritten question. Who is your shepherd? Whose voice do you follow? To which David, the psalmist, replies, the Lord. And in our text, it's written with all capital letters, which we know identifies the proper name of God, Yahweh, very specifically. It says, the Lord Yahweh is my shepherd. Not Baal, not Asherah, but Yahweh, the Lord. And then the rest of what follows in the psalm can be thought of as an exposition of this opening declaration. The Lord is my shepherd. Therefore, because of that, because I listen and follow to the Lord, follow the Lord's voice, I shall not want Because the Lord is my shepherd, I will trust him to lead me to green pastures and to quiet waters. I trust him to restore my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness, which he will guarantee with his name. Which means that although I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Even though I will walk through the same valley like everybody else, my perception of my safety will be different. For the Lord, my shepherd, he is with me. His shepherd's rod and his staff, they will comfort me. All this because the Lord is my shepherd and I listen for his voice. Whereas other people may listen to other gods as their shepherd, I will follow Yahweh to write the story of my life, to flourish me. And in the same way, everyone who sings a psalm and declares the same will find the abundant life, full souls that we were meant to live. My imagination, my understanding of what is possible to imagine will be enlarged because of this. My universe will be transformed from one that is ruled by scarcity to one that is ruled by abundance, from a fearful place to a safe place. And my understanding of what is temporary and what lasts, what is eternal, all this will be transformed. For the Lord is my shepherd. Now, some thousand years later, This man from Galilee will come along, and one of the key terms that he will use to describe himself is as the good shepherd. 
Now, even a child at that time would have known and understood what he was saying by this. He wasn't wading into some discussion about agricultural husbandry. But just in case this reference to Psalm 23 and other traditions that described God as a shepherd of his people wasn't clear, this man, who was not an actual shepherd, will proclaim, I am the good shepherd. I will lay down my life for my sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep will know me. What Jesus was doing was very intentionally claiming to be the good shepherd of Psalm 23, incarnate, made flesh. I am that shepherd, and now I am inviting you to follow me and listen to my voice as I guide you into this new world of new imaginations and new possibilities and new clarity over what is eternal and what will fade away. I am that good shepherd. So this is the reason why when the religious leaders confront Jesus and ask him to tell them plainly, to stop keeping us in suspense, tell us plainly if you are the Messiah the one sent by God to save God's people. What they're actually saying is actually um, quite disingenuous. For Jesus has made it quite abundantly clear already. But what they plainly want to do is to trap Jesus into saying the words, I am the Messiah, a phrase and a term that they will use to distort and misrepresent as being political. Jesus, seeing through this, replies, I did tell you, but you just don't want to believe. I think in that response, it's far more than just some clever sidestepping of the question that is being asked of him. Now, it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that people would ask such questions, what do you really, but at the same time already have predetermined mindsets about what they're expecting, what they're wanting to do, right? We love to think that the ideal process by which people come to decisions about important things in life is to gather lots and lots of information and then sit in a quiet room by ourselves, carefully weigh the, weigh the arguments for the pros and the cons, and come to a reasoned conclusion. Right? We think about that as some sort of, a, of an ideal process. We love to think that, but we also know at this point that's not how it happens, especially if there's one thing that our sociocultural, political, climate, atmosphere has taught us, it's that it's really hard to convince anyone of anything that they don't already believe, right? I know that when we say, yeah, I experienced that, most of us are probably thinking about somebody else but I think we're supposed to be thinking about ourselves. It's really hard to do that because I'm thinking about somebody else, but I think we're supposed to think about ourselves. This is all of us. This is humanity. 
This is a time for us to hold a mirror. But I think Jesus' response does more than just do that, just point to the stubbornness of the human heart. Rather, for me, he sheds light on the nature of belief itself. I did tell you, but you do not believe. You do not believe because you're not my sheep. Almost sounds like a circular argument. But I think what he's saying is that we don't so much need to be convinced of the truth as much as we need to experience the truth by living it. So, and I think we get this intuitively, that we don't just step in after thinking about the options and then say, I will live into that truth. But I think we have to experience that truth somehow in one way, one form or another. So a few months ago, I had the privilege of helping a church train their evangelism team. Now, the word evangelism in church nowadays is very fraught. You ask pastors, let's talk about evangelism. Pretty much the first thing that they will say in any discussion group is, what is evangelism nowadays? It's a hard thing for us to deal with because we know so many things that it probably isn't. It probably isn't just uh, a program. It probably isn't just getting people to say a certain set of words. It probably isn't just handing out tracts. We know what it probably isn't. Well then, what is it? And it's a struggle for so many of us, especially in our current cynical postmodern world. So this was my task, to help train a new sort of an evangelism team to share the good news with others in our current context. At one point, I asked the group this question. When it comes to talking about Christian faith, what are some baggage words that might unintentionally throw people off? What are some words that people, maybe you, you have no baggage about it, but people outside of actually uh, the actual faith might consider as baggage? Immediately, people started yelling out words. Church. Sin. The cross. That's a baggage word. Jesus is a baggage word. People are okay with God, but not with Jesus. Bible. I filled an entire whiteboard full of these terms, full of these words, in probably less than five minutes. You get the idea. I asked them then, what then can you say to convey the gospel? You could use these baggage words and try to explain them, or you could try to avoid these baggage words and then try to come up with another way. But that's, both of those things are incredibly difficult tasks. There was some murmuring for this group, but mostly the group was stumped. And finally, I asked this last question, how can we help people then experience Jesus? Not tell them about Jesus as much as experience Jesus. And then something triggered. The group came alive again. Hospitality, compassion, service, real friendship offered without strings attached, empathy. It's not 
that our convictions aren't important. I am a word person. I need to write down everything that I really think before I feel comfortable with what I really think. But rather that our experience of these truths, of these convictions are meant to be embodied, incarnate, word-made flesh in the following of our Jesus Christ as our good shepherd as we live out this life in the abundance of his grace. And that, I believe, is evangelism. That, I believe, is the mission of the church. And I think that's what we're called to do, to live this out. The Lord is my shepherd that will help others to see for themselves that indeed the Lord is their shepherd as well. Not to convince them with words, but to let them experience the goodness and the joy and the flourishing that happens when we follow this truth. I love the story of Tabitha that we read from Acts 9 today. Just to refresh your memory, she was the disciple who lived in Joppa who had recently died. She was beloved, known for her care for the poor and the marginalized. So when her community finds out that Peter is a nearby town, they bring him to her, hoping against hope that he could do something to give, bring her back to life. But there's this incredibly beautiful scene that's described here, that when Peter arrived at the house where Tabitha was lying dead, upstairs she is lying dead, that he is surrounded in this house by all these widows who come up to him as a witness of the truth that Tabitha lived out, showing him the robes that she had made and bought and, and gave to the most, the widows who are, who we know to be the most marginalized in the society and the clothing that Tabitha had made for them. And Peter brings her back to life. It is an amazing story. Now, to be honest, I got to tell you, when I saw that story in the context of these three stories, I was a little bit thrown off. I was like, I, I know what to do with, I see the connection between Psalm 23 and John 10, but what do I do with this story? It almost kind of is a distraction. I was kind of hoping that you guys would not remember that we read Acts 9. <laughs> it can be read as a story of God's God being the good shepherd, fulfilling his promises to give eternal life to the sheep. But I think the better way for us to deal with this and to understand this passage is to see her life as someone who incarnated the confession that the Lord is my shepherd. For as she followed the good shepherd, she began to take on the characteristics of the one she followed. The descriptions about her is a life 
that has lived into and has flourished under the declaration that we find in Psalm 23. And so it would be that we're told that many in Joppa would come to faith because of this incredible story. And again, I like to think that it wasn't just because of the amazing resuscitation that they saw, but rather the life of this saint. Her conviction became life, and her life embodied the truth of her belief. So how then can we tenaciously listen for the voice of the Good Shepherd to lead us places that will flourish our soul, to fill us, to make us understand that this place, this creation, is indeed safe with him by our side. And what are those other voices that distract you from hearing the voice of our Lord? A friend of mine said to me this week, I think the most important work of the disciple is to know that I am loved. How are you doing with that in your life? 